Welcome one and all to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. It's Friday, March 11th, 2022, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We hope you have had a good week, and don't forget a weekly reminder, yearly reminder to turn your clocks uh, ahead for daylight savings time, which kicks in Saturday night into Sunday morning. Also change those smoke alarm batteries so you don't get that middle of the night surprise here in the near future. All right, let's dive into some of the uh, news of the week. We've got a lot to get into here and we want to start things off with a big one, $3.7 billion big. That's how much we are getting from the federal government here in New Mexico for infrastructure projects. And uh, you probably remember hearing a while back that former Albuquerque Mayor Martin Chavez has been uh, sort of put in charge of the vetting process and the priority process for that. He is the infrastructure advisor for the state, for the governor. And so we wanted to catch up with him, find out how the process is going, and find out how it's working First and foremost, uh, how are they prioritizing? How do people get to make their pitches? All of that stuff. So we cover all of that. And something interesting you're going to hear about is that there will soon be a website, a dashboard where you can track approved projects all the way from Washington to the street or the road uh, here in New Mexico. And so this is correspondent Gwyneth Dolan and her conversation with New Mexico infrastructure advisor Martin Chavez. Infrastructure Advisor Martin Chavez, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, certainly, and it's senior because I'm now old. <laughs> Nonsense. It's all it's all uh, expertise. <laughs> President Biden signed back in November the one trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill, and then Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham appointed you uh, to be in charge of spending some of this money. She said her top three priorities would be broadband, transportation, and water systems. And you are um, mostly over the sort of roads and bridges stuff, but also overseeing a little bit of the broadband and, uh, and water stuff. It's been a few months. Um, are there specifics coming into focus in terms of what we're doing with this money? Things that are getting the green light, looking like they're about to happen? There are. Uh two pots of money, uh, the ARPA monies, American Rescue Plan Act, uh, which we received $1.1 billion. We had a little hiccup along the way. The Supreme Court decided, uh, ruled that the legislature had to appropriate, so the governor had a special session. They appropriated about half of it, and then they completed the rest of it two weeks ago in the regular session. Uh, that's very broad money, uh, but it's divvied up about uh, a whole lot into broadband. At the end of the day, it's going to be about a billion dollars in broadband between the two buckets of money. Uh, a lot of work on roads, a lot of water system work, uh, and then also part of my portfolio is transition, energy transition as we start to move to a, a lower carbon footprint. Uh, and then uh, part of that includes building resilience, mm -hmm. you know, sealing envelopes and things of that nature so you can capture the, the heat and not release it into the atmosphere. Uh, New Mexico has something like 200 bridges and almost 4,000 miles of highway that are in poor condition. This is something that we gripe about every day. People at home are thinking, 
which of these roads is getting fixed? Is it the crummy bridge that I have to drive over every day? How can people find out what's getting approved? Well, very shortly, uh, we will have a dashboard. We've been working on it for two months now, team of developers. Uh, it's going to be, you'll be able to track the federal dollars from their source in Washington down to when they got appropriated by the legislature and then to what departments it goes to and then what uh, programs the department's going to put them into. And let's take streets, for example. Uh, let's say they decided to do uh, uh, Pinon Hills in Farmington. That's a long-awaited project and that was funded. Uh, what's the process for letting the contract, who gets the contract, what their timelines are. You'll be able to track and see, is it on track? Uh, so it's, it's a tremendous tool for policymakers, but also it's a transparency tool for the public. This is exactly where your money's being spent. Uh, and, and as you know, what most people really don't understand governmental finance. Half the people in government don't understand <laughs> governmental finance. Uh, but it's complicated, and it's not a matter of just saying the president's signing a bill and all of a sudden, whoop, there's the money right there. Uh, because it is the public's money and there's their accountability issues. Do we know what that website is yet? Well, it will be part, initially it's going to be part of the Department of Finance Administration. We want to migrate it over to the governor's office because that's an easier place for the public to go. Uh, and uh, uh, I've been working on the backroom development uh, and we're excited about it. All right. It, uh, dams. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers says close to half of the state's 500 dams are in rough shape and a third of them could fail, uh, putting lives in danger downstream. Uh, you've said the priority is for shovel-ready projects. Um, how many dam projects are shovel-ready? I can't tell you exactly how many, uh, except that they're prioritized based on safety. Uh, and I can also tell you this, unfortunately, for all the money that's coming into New Mexico, it's not going to be enough. It just isn't going to be enough, but it's more than we've ever had before. And so uh, spending it wisely, effectively, is, is really a, a number one priority for the governor and everybody on her team. Uh, but we have a dam that nearly failed down in Doniana County. That's funded now. Uh, and they're already starting to work at, at where you find the contractors, which is going to be another issue in getting this money out the door, and that's capacity, because there aren't enough contractors. Not, we're almost at full employment in New Mexico. And when you add $3.7 billion worth of spending, where are the electricians and the plumbers and the engineers? Well, everybody uh, who's trying to redo a bathroom right now feels the state's pain. There you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on adding one right now. Unfortunately, I can't spend any of this money on it. Ah, good. <laughs> we'll follow up on that. Yeah, really. Big picture timeline here. How long is it going to take to get this money in our bank account and get it back out? It will take uh, between one month uh, in five years, depending on the program. The ARPA monies are pretty much ready to go. You'll start to see unveiling of EV chargers, electric vehicle chargers. The president was very committed to make sure you could drive from one end of the country to the other uh, with electrical vehicles. Uh, right now in New Mexico, you can go pretty well east to west. North to south is a problem. You may have to stop overnight and charge for eight hours uh, to get there. And so they'll be deployed initially along the interstates, which are also designated as green corridor, green fuel corridors. Uh, I-10 down south, and then we'll start branching out. Ultimately, the goal is to have a, everyone living within 50 miles of an EV charger. And as most people know, most cars are going to get charged at home. That's, that's really the future. But if you've got to drive, if you have to drive to Las Vegas, New Mexico, or wherever it may be, uh, you need to be able to charge along the way. Mm -hmm. In January, the governor asked city and county leaders about their infrastructure priorities. What are local politicians telling you they want? Well, we started out, particularly with the ARPA monies, because they're not as well designated. They're, they're broad categories of, of spending, which 
if you're in the government business, you want as, as much freedom and discretion as you, as you have. Uh, we want to do big things. After the Supreme Court decision, the uh, legislature was required to appropriate, uh, and they basically just mixed that into the small uh, traditional capital outlay projects. The pocket park here, the swimming, the swimming pool over here in my district. Uh, and so the, the priorities are, are pretty simple. They're, I want a good road. And if you're in rural New Mexico, I want my kids to be able to get on the internet uh, to do their schoolwork or apply for jobs. Uh, and that really is going to be, of all these monies, from my perspective, the most transformational is going to be wiring New Mexico. Is there any conflict between what you're hearing um, from uh, mayors and county commissions and the priorities that the governor has set? Conflicts between mayors and county officials and governors? It couldn't happen in New Mexico. Sure, it, it's all, it's, it's, it, thus far it's collegial, uh, it's competitive, uh, and uh, we invite that competition. Uh, because we think the, the better projects rise to the top in that process. But sure, uh, there's more demand than there are resources, and so there's going to be competition. So who makes the decisions? You're the, you know, infrastructure czar, but is that a, a real fiefdom, or what's the process? Who makes the decisions? Who ranks the projects? What are the criteria? Boy, I wish it was a fiefdom, <laughs> don't we all? Uh, no, governor is the, the decider-in-chief, as they say. Uh, and uh, my job is to give her advice and also to help construct a process to get this money out the door. I think that's one of the reasons she looked to me, and we've been friends for a long time, adversaries from time to time, uh, but, but always friends. And uh, I think during my tenure as mayor, we got a lot done. We got money out the door and built things, and that's what she wants to see done with this. She wants to, it's not doing anybody but the banks any good sitting in the bank. She said, the governor said that we were getting enough money out of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, 3.7 billion in order to benefit all communities. How are you making sure that smaller rural areas benefit as much as Albuquerque? Well, uh, part of the guidance from the Biden administration uh, centers around uh, equity. Uh, this has to be fair, has to be fairly distributed. Uh, f for example, if you look at the way electrical vehicle chargers have been distributed thus far around the state, South Valley, none. Southeast Heights, except for Manzano Mesa, which kind of services the Four Hills area, none. Go to the west side of the state, go out onto tribal land, nothing. That's not equitable. Uh, and that's where you're going to find my presence uh, very heavily. We're going to make sure that it benefits all New Mexicans. And that's one of the things the governor is very committed to. And uh, she used a lot of her ARPA monies this past uh, session uh, for housing, uh, particularly for affordable housing and, and, and assistance for people on their, on their uh, money down to buy their housing. So uh, this is going uh, where it's needed. You're a Democrat. The governor is a Democrat. True. You've individually got a lot of power here. If I'm a Republican sitting in Hobbs or Clovis, how am I reassured that I'm not going to get, you know, that my town isn't going to get penalized because we vote Republican? Just wait. <laughs> uh, when you see the road monies uh, in New Mexico, you're going to see them in the oil patch. Uh, and it was unfortunate that the congresswoman from southern New Mexico voted against both ARPA uh, and, and, you know, against all of the infrastructure uh, spending. But uh, we don't penalize constituents because of the errors in judgment of their other elected officials. It's all New Mexico. And we're going to be able to check up on that in the website that's coming online soon where we'll be able to track all of these projects. Is that right? 
Exactly, and and it will take time. I mean, we're, you know, the legislature just made decisions two weeks ago. That money has to be uh, budgeted, needs to be accounted for. Then you need to let contracts, uh, and you stumble on all these issues of capacity we talked about. So it will take time. And some of the federal monies uh, under under the BIL, the bipartisan infrastructure law, are programmed to take five years. The money is spread over a five-year period. So. When people go online, they'll see the beginnings of it, uh, but as it develops, it'll become much more uh, texturized, if you will. So if I'm out there in Vanderwagen or Mora, and I'm like, hey, we really need this flood project or this dam or whatever, how do I say, hey, please pay attention to my project? How do I get that to you? Well, they can contact me through the governor's office. We always recommend that people uh, well, contact the governor directly. She wants to hear from New Mexicans. And now that we seem to be exiting this pandemic, uh, she really likes to get out around the state and she's already traveling. Uh, so hit her up directly, go to reception and say, hey, governor, what about this? Uh, and then also to the legislators. Uh, we worked uh, as best as could be worked with the, the, the legislature in this last session. It's really difficult when the building's closed off, everyone's masked and you have all these protocols. It is what it is, uh, but we're starting to go beyond that. And so start talking. There's a reason the squeaky wheel uh, gets the oil. It needs it. Well, all right, we'll <laughs> put some contact information up on the website and encourage people to reach out. Thank you so much for being with us today. Sure, it's gonna be fun. Speaking of money, we had a great Facebook Live this week with host Gene Grant. He caught up with a friend of the show, Charles Ashley. We have talked to him in the past about his great coding program he has for youth here in Albuquerque. And his latest gig is as the director of the Albuquerque Economic Development Department. And so attracting businesses, taking care of businesses that are here, growing our economy. That is what he will be tasked with. And got to say, he is a great ambassador for the city and love his positive outlook on the prospects for Albuquerque, which you're going to hear in this interview. And it's a reminder, we do these Facebook Lives once a week, usually Wednesday around lunchtime. And so if you want to catch those live, best way to do that is to make sure you like and follow the New Mexico in Focus Facebook page. Also, it is streamed at the same time to YouTube if you uh, are on there lunchtime instead. Again, just search for New Mexico in Focus and make sure you subscribe. But here is our interview with host Gene Grant and the new director of Albuquerque Economic Development, Charles Ashley III. And of course, someone's revving an engine. Ah, good deal. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> Sorry, folks, it's a little, you know, when you do stuff from home, things happen. I got someone behind me revving their motor, but that happens. Yeah. We're going to persevere anyway. <laughs> that is Charles Ashley III right there. He's the Economic Development Director for the City of Albuquerque. We're going to have a conversation today about the art of economic development, how what we can expect for the city and his philosophy and staff uh, to get to that point. 
But do let me make an introduction. This might be a little bit lengthy because Charles has done a lot of things in the city, but I do want to get this out there in case you don't know. <laughs> Charles Ashley the 30 is the founder of Cultivating Coders. You might remember this guy is a New Mexico-based company that provides technical training and curriculum in web and mobile application development in K through 12 schools, as well as adult learners. Very big deal for Albuquerque. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. As you might know, a lot of the European countries out there are actually doing coding straight away from like the third grade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is where it's at to keep up with the rest of the world. We can thank Charles for doing his bit here for Albuquerque. But he has also served as the film liaison and marketing specialist for Bernalillo County's uh, ADD in, uh, uh, previously in New Mexico. He was manager of marketing for CNM Stimulus Center, a place that I absolutely love. Um, he's also been a Rising Star Award recipient from the Albuquerque Business Journal Influencers 40 Under 40 Award and selected as a member of the White House Tech Hire Initiative. And he most recently won the New Mexico Ethics and Business Award. He's done some great stuff, including being a, uh, on the board of One Albuquerque, U.S. Eagle Federal Q, uh, Credit Union, my bank, just changed its name, and Mexico Learning Alliance, Mexico Aid Services, and the APS Foundation Selfless Senior Selection Committee. Now, I do, I wanted to get all that out there. Charles, welcome. You have had <laughs> quite the run here in Albuquerque, and I have to say congratulations. It's really been quite the stair step, everything I just read there to see you get to this place. Tell us, when did you officially start uh, in this position? Uh, thank you, Gene, for the, the introduction. It, uh, it, it's, it's funny, it, it's, uh, my, my mother would always tell me, you know, just say thank you uh, when people are reading about you or, or give you a compliment. And, and to this day, it's still difficult when you read off the things that we've been able to accomplish in this, in this journey as an Ashley family. So thank you for that. Uh, a reminder, right? So that it's humbling. So thank you for that and the congrats. Um, sorry, what was your question? That's, right. That's just... right. I got one for you straight away. Let's talk about cultivating coders before we get to your current position. Okay. Um, but tell us about that. I, I do want folks to get caught up on that. Okay. The brief story, when did it start? What was the reasoning behind it? And where did you take it uh, eventually? So real briefly, uh, I was I did a bunch of work uh, around computer, accelerated computer programming type of uh, programs within uh, secondary schools and in universities and whatnot. Uh, and I noticed as I was traveling in these conferences and, and dealing with different companies and whatnot that the, the, the demographic was very... Uh, similar, right? You would see a lot of Anglo men younger. Uh, you would see a lot of Asian American men younger. But uh, in regards to Black, Brown, Native communities and women, you wouldn't see a huge presence at a lot of these conferences. And then when you when I started really digging into the makeup of a lot of the classroom settings, as you got to college or these accelerated programs, the makeup was very similar to what what the conferences that I was attending that you would see. Mm -hmm. uh, so then I started asking a question of uh, with this amazing skill, how is it that it's, there's no representation there? And, and then, you know, you ask around, ask around, and you get certain questions, uh, certain answers or whatnot. And then I started noticing, I did my own little research. I would go to high schools and just ask random questions like, hey, you have a computer science program. Who's the teacher? Mm -hmm. And, and the, the most common story you would hear is like, oh, it's the football teacher who's really good at Excel teaching computer science. So now you're thinking in these areas where it's black, brown, uh, native populations, if your first exposure to computer science is someone who they're not from that background, how, do, how would you truly engage and inspire a young person to continue down that path, right? Mm -hmm. 
Then you start looking at the price points where uh, boot camps were starting to get popular. The price point was high. So, so all that being said, uh, I stepped back and I thought about the consulting world I was in where I helped people build their own companies. And a mentor of mine was the one who actually uh, planted the seed for me and said, aren't you tired of building other people's companies? Or, and aren't you tired of uh, just sitting back and not actually doing something just so he would say there's doers and then there's talkers and then he's like you're a doer so why aren't you doing and and that's pretty much where where it started where he motivated me kind of pushed me out the door uh he said I had enough community equity in this state in the city where I was able to to pull a company that when I put the budget together for the first year would have cost me 150,000 to put together but with the community equity and partnerships and friendships and whatnot, it was nowhere near that number to get it started. And we started, we put it together. Uh, we went out to Texas and South by Southwest, by the way, that's about to happen this week. Right. And just with the business model, we won tech startup of the year. And we beat out over 30 companies where they were already making money. So our business model uh, alone was enough for us to win it. And the rest is history. From that, we've been on a Navajo Nation. We've been out in Oklahoma, Mississippi. Uh, the Netherlands, Toronto, uh, you name it. We it, it, it was a remarkable run. It is a remarkable run. And the team is going to continue to to grow the company while I serve this beautiful city. That's a great story. Hey, one more question on that. I mentioned sort of joking, sort of not joking, actually. I remember it, it had to have been about a decade ago now, maybe even longer, with the nation of Estonia and some other nations around that part of the world were starting mm -hmm. to just have coding yes. as part of their regular curricula starting very early, third to fifth grade. Absolutely. In the, right? And the idea was they want to have adults at the end of this run, by the time they graduate high school or college, being very adept at this because that's where the entire future was going. Mm -hmm. How is that... Uh, that sense happening in the United States, in your view, are, are we on board with coding at this point? To be honest, I, I feel as if recently people are are looking at they're starting to look at computer science as a as an absolute necessary skill set. Right. Mm -hmm. I'll give you the best example for us. I knew in us through the company, through cultivating, we knew that start young because then you could graduate at 18 and not to discredit like, you know, college or degrees or whatnot, but you could graduate at 18. If you start programming at 12, 13, you don't, you don't, you wouldn't necessarily need a degree because your skill set right. is so strong. Right. And when we went to the Netherlands, it it it, re it reconfirmed and reassured it, it strengthened that thought process with our company because we were we have a partnership out in the Netherlands where we were in a hacking competition, and the majority of the teams that were in the hacking competition, Gene. They were sixth graders. They were seventh graders, right? And and when you see that, and then we then I start asking questions. Well, well, when did they start programming? Oh, third, fourth, fifth grade. Uh, and I asked, what was the difference between here and well, the Netherlands, Netherlands and the United States? And uh, my my good friend Anouk, and she she has a beautiful program out in the Netherlands. She said uh, they realized that you had to invest in the young people if you wanted the actual skill sets that you were seeking. The, the end result, the talent, right? So you had to truly invest. And they were, she was very, the Dutch are very blunt. She was like, if you invest too late, it's too late. But if you invest early on and keep investing, you'll get, you're going to get your return on investment. And, and it's not necessarily like monetary, it's like com the community, right? You're going to have 
a skilled labor force. And then with a skilled labor force, you're able to go out and to look to, to, to attract outside businesses and not only attract outside businesses, but grow existing businesses. So the, the benefit of investing in, in your youth when it comes to trades, not just tech. In the beginning, it was just tech for myself. But then I started to see other industries uh, struggle with hiring processes and also saying uh, a lack of a, a skilled labor force. So why not invest in, in our youth when it comes across, when it comes to all the trades? Right. Right. Good point there. I, I appreciate you getting in all the trades there. Uh, you know, you mentioned, I got, I got to ask this one, one last thing on coding, though. Uh, the marketplace and how it decided to roll out coding here in the United States, you mentioned, and it infuriated me at the time, just how much money a parent would have to pay out of pocket mm-hmm. to get their kid in a coding camp. And I was like, come on, people, you're not, are you missing the point here? This is not a for-profit enterprise. This is about building the future. So in, in a, less than two generations, we can be on solid ground. Why, why isn't coding more affordable in, in this country? Well, because first and probably just to my experience, and I can't speak to anyone else's experience, sure. what, what I witnessed was uh, industries recognize that, oh, this is a skill set that everyone is going to want to have access to. And then our capitalistic side of us uh, looked at it as a money-making opportunity, which is not, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And, and you know me very well. I believe in wealth creation and transformation of wealth. Trans, you know, I believe in wealth. I, I'll never back down from that. Mm-hmm. But then I also look at it as you still could make it, make it affordable. But there's, there's ways you can do that. And that really was part of the reason why we started the program, you know, nearly seven years ago, where it was, find funding for people who need it most. So in that entire time of cultivating coders, no one ever paid out of their pocket to, to take the program. Not one time. It, it, it came from either donors, foundations. We have great partners ranging from Microsoft to Facebook to the Albuquerque Community Foundation. Uh, but then also having a good enough track record to where we, you know, we were able to get on uh, provider, like the uh, Department of Labor part, uh, um, providers list where People, participants could take the program uh, for free of charge. And people say, there's no such thing as free. And you're right. With our program, with the program at Cultivating, you know, your payment was your passion and your right. commitment. And that, was, and, and, and that that can take you a long way. Mm-hmm. And, and so that is the that, that was like the impetus of why I really started the program, where it was $17,000, $18,000, $20,000 to take a program right. that if you looked at the data was extremely successful. Like you could go to a program and if you had to work at the, you know, two years later, you're in a six figure job, like where you're using your brain, right? Where, so it's not as uh, damaging on your body or whatnot. So, so for me, uh, getting it, getting it to the point where it was accessible to, to communities where they didn't have a certain income was very important because I like yourself, it, it, it just, it, 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 it angered you to see that there was this skill out there that we, the world knew, the whole world knew that you needed this skill set. Yet we were here charging twenty thousand. Who has twenty thousand in their savings, James? Right, right. I know. <laughs> or well, well you make, or you make a take the risk. There. there are people that do, and those are the people who usually traditionally get ahead. Exactly. They can pay twenty grand out of pocket for their kid, in the you know what I mean. So there are some, and that's the problem sometimes. I know you're a free market guy, so I know you're not 
you know, bashing on the free market. This is it's just one of those little examples exactly. that can happen along the way. It's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, thank you for spending a little bit of time on that because I wanted folks to understand you a little bit more. That you do come from the marketplace. I do. You're not just some hired dweeb that doesn't <laughs> understand business, doesn't understand how to get a thing off the ground, doesn't know how to talk to people. You, you know all of that. So I think that makes a big difference. And so if with that, tell me about how you see this job as director of economic development. What, what, what do you bring to it and, and, and what do you want to do? And not so much detail, but what do you bring to it? Then we'll cover some of the details about what you want to do with it. Uh, first of all, I was uh, humbled and honored when the mayor called, and this was early November, and mm-hmm. offered it. was jokingly, he said, don't hang up on me. I know you don't need this. <laughs> you can <laughs> lounge and relax, and you don't need the stress in your life. And he said, but no, we would love for you to come and, and help out at the city however you may. And um, I sat back, and I, I called a few people. And when I said Fugee, and I called 30 40 people and said, hey, what do you think, you know, about me going to the city and, and, and taking over economic development? And I was thinking at least four or five people would say no. Mm-hmm. No, nah, why would you do that? And everyone said, why not? Well, you, you've built things. You, you come from the community. Um, uh, you can probably push back on ideas that typically people probably wouldn't push back on just because of, like, your background or whatnot. And then as I sat back and I reflected, uh, the, the the one thing that made me really say yes was this community has been great to me and my family. And it, it's provided things that I never imagined for my family. And why not? Why not go and serve a community that's been good to you? So it was my way, it's our family's way of saying, let's go, let's serve, and let's see what we can do. And with that, it's... Uh, I felt as if I could come and present an idea where it sounds crazy. I'm telling you, Gene, when I when I pitched cultivating coders before we we launched that thing, I didn't. I don't. I think maybe one or two people said it could work. Everyone else was like that never worked. Okay. And then you know, then I started doing like small time investing. And when I would do a small time investment, people would say, "Oh, that wouldn't work," and then it would work. So then you get to a point where it's like, "Yo, for for things to work, in my opinion, just takes." a massive effort and for you to sit in a meeting to think of ways for why something should work instead of why not. Right. We've gotten into this mindset of that can't work. Why would we do that? No, 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 no. Instead of saying, okay, what, where's the opening in this door that we can make this work. And, uh, and that, and that's, that's what I wanted to bring to the city and, 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 and hopefully uh, that spills over with this team in EDD who's talented. Already. Like, it's an extremely talented team. When I came up here, uh, I was impressed with the thoroughness, the professionalism, the work ethic. Uh, and and I all I thought was if I could just sprinkle on a little bit of that entrepreneurial spirit that I have, we probably could do some amazing things up here. I love it. Uh, describe the department. Most folks don't know what makes up an economic development department. What does it do? What's your bailiwick? Let the folks know what's, what, what happens inside. The part about economic development is if you go and you Google it and you go to like each city or state, you might have 90 different results of an economic development department because it really is a reflection of 
what are you trying to address in your community, right? So with us, you have, of course, you have the director, then you have your deputy directors who typically have a, a special strength in certain areas. So like Lisa Beta, she has startup knowledge. Yeah. She has the knowledge of community, knowledge of technology, right? Yes, uh, the deputy director that I'm hoping to bring in will have a strong economic development background. When you're talking planning, you're talking the contractual works, the, uh, the, the recruitment, uh, the retention, and then the building of existing businesses, right? And then you have people uh, in the management area where they have strong economic development backgrounds, but more so getting into the weeds of things, right? You have that. Then you have uh, the workforce development part, which you know that I'm a big advocate of workforce development. Uh, Mark Zytek is is a, a monster when it comes to uh, economic development and initiatives and, and and bringing partners to the table. Monica Mitchell is amazing when it comes to uh, keeping everything organized in that economic development space. And of course, you have our our star, which is the film office and Cindy McCrossin doing her thing, building it. Um, and we're on pace to exceed records of last year and the previous year. So you you have all of that range, uh, even down to our fiscal team, to Janelle and uh, to Sonia. Uh, and then you have uh, Chris Ch- uh, Chavez doing his thing when it comes to keeping uh, leader projects and IRBs, right? All the incentives that we can offer to companies that come in. So when you think about it, economic development really is the pulse of a community because it touches almost every vein of a community. And, and, that, and that's what makes it so unique uh, and what makes this department so unique. And, and recently, uh, as, I've, as I've come aboard, we've onboarded uh, someone for federal grant writing and, 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 and seeking out funding. So we're going to get creative in the types of ways that we bring funding to the city, right? And I think that's that's the strength of when you do have like a, a entrepreneur or business owner uh, kind of sitting at the table saying there's other ways for us to generate revenue or bring funding to a community besides the traditional ways like that non-traditional uh, thought process is what I'm excited for with, in regards to our economic development team. I, I, I would hope that after my term that uh, we walk away and say they were extremely and when I say innovative, I'm talking about in the truest sense of innovation, Gene, everyone throws the word around. Okay. The truest sense of innovation is taking a risk, taking a chance that no one believes in, but you've done your due diligence, you've done enough research, and most people, when you do take a chance, they haven't gone through the process of doing research. They haven't gone through the process of saying, what's the next big thing? What's the next thing? What's the next move for Albuquerque that can put us neck and neck with all of these other cities that we've seen grow and thrive? The El Pasos. Oklahoma cities, the Austins, uh, we look uh, the Boise's. The fact that I'm naming Boise, right. right, in that list lets you know that you have you have to be willing to take a chance and be innovative. So our economic development department, at the end of my term, our term, I hope that people say they did everything in their power to take take a calculated risk and they were truly innovative. Mm-hmm. You know, what, you're coming in. It has to be said at a very challenging time for Albuquerque in business because yes. we're part of a course, the bigger global, you know, response that's going on out there. But we, we do have challenges, Charles. And, you know, if we can all think of times we drove up and down central, either downtown where I'm here or Knob Hill, where you're starting to see a lot of windows starting to be boarded up, mm-hmm. and, you know, it just all that kind of a thing. That happens. When I moved here in the late 80s, Knob Hill was unbelievably boarded up, but it didn't stay that way forever. 
Uh-huh. You get my drift here. Yes. There's always there's always another way out of out of it. I guess from a philosophical point of view, I'm curious where you are about what can be accomplished in four years, given the challenges that we have for small business, particularly. And I'm, I'm not going to ask you any particular programs. I know you're still putting stuff together, but is there really fundamentally anything you in the department can do for small business along our, our corridor here to kind of bring life back? What, what's your sense of that? Absolutely. I, I believe that it's coming from a small business and coming from uh, an industry where uh, I have friends who are business owners. I have mm-hmm. colleagues who are business owners. I truly believe that us as a city, even even us as a state, should sit back and actually listen to ideas and recommendations from the business community. I, I believe that the people who are actually boots on the ground have the probably the better ideas. And instead of listening and taking it to offense, right? You're listening with intent to say, okay, that might be far-fetched now, but what steps and measures can we take to actually get to that point? And everything is not overnight. I, and I believe if, if we approach it as, we're not going to solve all these issues overnight and be very honest and transparent with our community say, this is step one of the process, which could be uh, how do we have more activity from uh, first responders downtown, right? I'm just throwing stuff out there. It could be more activity downtown, right? Where people feel safe, where you see uh, APD on a corner over here, or you see a fireman just walking down enjoying uh, a lunch or whatnot with his or her buddies or whatnot. Uh, Also believe in, Holding, uh, holding landowners and and landlords accountable for spaces that aren't being utilized and occupied, right? There has to be accountability. So, if if a, if someone is going to lease a building, for example, and there hasn't been activity in that area for quite some time, me as an owner, I would think, well, let me fix this place up and make the lease affordable to at least get a tenant in there. And I don't know if that's happening right now, right? Uh, you know, that that's going to be something that we're going to address in our three-year plan. I'm excited about this three-year plan, Gene, because I feel as if we can put some things in there that are that are tangible and that are achievable and that aren't uh, radical. Because, you know, if you talk to people who own property or own a building or whatnot, if you tell them uh, we need to hold landlord accountable, they'll, they might say you're radical. I don't think it's radical. If Knob Hill is the way it is. Sit downtown is the way it is right now, where people are, are looking for for um, solutions. That's the when you actually have a community looking for solutions. Right. That's when you should sit down and talk and listen the most, right? Because now you can come together as a collective and, and probably uh, think of two or three things that that can be achieved in one to two years. So, uh, my philosophy is a community driven philosophy. That's how I've done pretty much everything in my life. I, I think if you lean on your community, if you nurture your community, if you listen to your community, and, and if and if you take care of your community, that community uh truly cares and wants to give back to 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 their to their uh their friends, their families, their neighbors or whatnot. And I think if we can if that's the philosophy that I would love for us to, to hang our hat on is like let's listen to the community and let's make this a community driven type of economic development plan moving forward mm-hmm. that makes sense do you have a mechanism now for folks to get at you or your department uh, heads and and talk about these things so right now i'm i've been doing a uh on an, an informal speaking tour right going around discussing things with people 
I know that they're uh, through Karen Iverson and her department, they're trying to put together a more formal like symposium or whatnot. Uh, okay. But at, uh, April is when we're, we want to put the final touches on that three-year plan. And in that plan will be some actively engaging business owners, actively engaging uh, community organizers, because economic development is not just business owners, right? When we talk about this, Gene, we always discuss, oh, what about the business owners? What about the business owners? But think about the community organizations. Think about the, the schools that are in these areas. Uh, think about the people who uh, frequent the areas, right? So it's not just from the business standpoint. I think if you can get voices from everyone who who would love to see downtown thriving, who would love to see Knob Hill not have windows boarded up. Uh, that's beyond just business owners. That 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 truly is a community conversation. So in that plan, you're going to see a, a couple of examples or proposals for community engagement. So yes, absolutely. Uh, we will be in a community. You will see economic development uh, with a strong presence in the Albuquerque community. I'm curious, and by the way, when that uh, is ready to roll out, we'd love to kind of talk with you about the details. Absolutely, absolutely. Interesting stuff there. Um, you hear a lot anecdotally, Charles, that it's hard to open a business here. You know, I, I know a lot of small business owners over the years, uh, you know, 30-some years now, seen a lot of different waves sort of come and go for business now. Is it truly that hard in your view, and, and why aren't there more businesses open? And does this go back to the point you just made that as part of a holistic Problem meaning you got to have bankers willing to lend, you got to have people willing to lease buildings. You know, it's a whole thing mm-hmm. out there. Is it, is it hard to open a business here? Oh, how the for as culturally diverse as we are as the city, yeah. right? Where we, you know, we have beautiful people ranging from our Latino Native communities to our Black and our Asian communities to our refugee communities or whatnot. Uh, but I also think. When it comes to information outreach, I think that's where we probably drop the ball, right? If you are a person who researches and you know the right people, you're going to say it's not hard to start a business, right? I I know my privilege. I know that I was allowed to start companies because I had built up a reputation through economic development back in the day at Burnley County to consulting with companies. So I built up this community equity that allowed me to have access to resources that if I didn't do that, I would have never known about, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can separate yourself from your privilege, myself included, it is absolutely extremely hard to start a business. And I'll tell you what, if you don't know that, if you don't know the permitting process, if you don't know the planning process, if you don't know that there's a, uh, Offices like uh, like we have our MBDA office where it's, it specializes in helping you with different services like from accounting to contracts to procurement. If you don't know about PTAC uh, that's offered through the state, if you don't know about SBA and all the uh, resources that they offer, if you don't know about all of, of think about the countless companies that help out uh, the, the the chambers like the Black Chamber, the Hispano Chamber. If you don't know about uh, the Indian Public Culture Center. So think about all these resources I'm naming off to you, right? And this is at the top of my head. I'm sure there's hundreds of more, hundreds more of these. If you don't have the knowledge of these programs that can help you in these resources, it's absolutely difficult to start a business. I don't have three months to wait, Gene, for a permit to get issued. Right. I don't have three months to wait for uh, someone to come do an inspection. 
if when, usually when someone is starting a business, especially in New Mexico, we are because we're a blue collar, hardworking state. We started out in necessity. I, I'm good at roasting coffee. I'm good at uh, making biscuit Cheetos. I'm good at construction. So most times, and these are most people I've spoken to, most of my friends, when I ask them, well, how'd you get into, uh, how'd you get to landscape? Oh, well, you know, I was helping out this other guy and I saw how much, you know, I, I felt I could do the same job. I bought a truck and I did this. So then, you know, when like when the PPP time came around, it was funny how many of the people who I was friends with or even uh, helped uh, with services around my house who I actually helped out with the PPP process because they just started a business out of necessity, yeah. right? And, if, and so, so one of my, uh, you know, I was furious with not just the city, not just state and not just federal. You just, you're furious overall because we have people who write and put these policies and procedures in place that probably don't have a background from, oh, I started a business out of necessity, right? So think about how many revisions we had to make to the to the federal process and the city process and the state process. So long-winded answer, no, it's, it, it's, it, it's, the, it's the most difficult thing to start a business when you're just doing it out of love of starting a business. Right, exactly right. Interesting points there. I appreciate that a lot. Let me ask you about the future in uh, Albuquerque's potential and the things that we have on hand that you can leverage, literally, <laughs> to get us on a, on a global map. I'm curious your philosophy on some of the things that are going on around the world right now that are very hot. Uh, we can start with EV, yep. electric vehicles, yep. batteries. Uh -huh. I mean, this is clearly the future. It is part of your bailiwick start, you know, to, to look at mm -hmm. these kind of things and to encourage some grassroots or even beyond that, uh, you know, uh, help or whatever the case may be, to get in the game on these global things as it's happening right now because we're surrounded by Arizona running down the road on EV, Texas uh -huh. is running down the road on EV. How influential can a city director of economic development be? Can you rally the troops, including the labs? I mean, mm -hmm. everybody else to get in the game here? And these are, so as I said, that three-year plan is going to come out in April, but there's so many thoughts I've had. So number one, We've, we've, we're, we're being very aggressive when it comes to aerospace, right? We're right. part of that build back better challenge where uh, we're, we're in a great position because gee, we're not starting from scratch. Everyone knows like we've already right. like put in on aerospace, right? So the fact that everyone in the city is buying into it. And then you have like the different biotech firms that are looking, uh, that are growing right beneath our nose, right? You have that. Then you have projects uh, that, that, that are in the lab that are looking to be flushed to turn into to bigger energy uh, efficient type of projects. So I just think it's a matter of us collaborating with groups who typically would say they would collaborate or kind of collaborate. I think if we make it like a deliberate ever effort to, to collaborate, for example, you know, I have a couple of meetings and conversations with Sandia uh, thinking of, Hey, what, what companies are being created there that we could home grow these type of companies, right? And not always looking for recruitment of outside, right? I think there's companies that are seeing that there are bioscience, bioscience companies here, right? That, that can use a, an infusion of cash or just investments or whatnot, or just support. So I think we have this potential to be, I don't want to say a tech hub. I, I want us to be almost looked at as a like an energy efficient hub. Like we we we're gonna house uh, companies and industries that are looking to to 
be better with energy efficiency. Like you said, the, the lithium batteries or whatnot. Uh, people are trying, all kinds of companies are trying to figure out how do you get these batteries to, to last longer and to be stronger and more powerful or whatnot. So for that, it's the same philosophy with our, with our young people, Gene. You have to invest in these things, right? We're not going to get rid of uh, like gas and oil overnight. It, like that's a hundred year process, but you have to invest your money in these in these industries where on the surface you might not think it's a great idea at first, but how do you know until you flush things out? And I think if we can hang our hat on being energy efficient, friendly for companies locally and out of state, uh, I think that's a great start. And like I said, we're we're doubling down with aerospace. We're doubling down uh, uh, with uh, like energy, like everyone's talking about energy from the governor to our mayor right. to, you know, to the mayor's down in Cruces, because you're seeing it everywhere. And everyone, the funny part, we're all on the same page here, right? And I think in, for our state and city, we're we're in a in an amazing and unique time where the state agrees what type of three-year projects we should be working on. The city is agreeing what state, uh, what type of project we should be working on. The counties agreeing on what type of projects we should be working on. So I think we just, if we can truly uh, keep this collaboration going, well, we're going to be in great shape. Mm-hmm. You have to be optimistic, Gene, man. I'm an yeah. optimistic man. When I've been told no my whole life, Gene, and I, but I've got a whole lot of yeses. <laughs> That's how, how that's how it goes. You know, there's always a million no's before you get to that yes in in free market world. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I appreciate your points about all those different disciplines you mentioned. A, a lot of them have been around for a while, mm-hmm. the biotech and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. It, but is there is there anyone in particular in this coming report that you're mentioning for the end of the month that we are not aware of now that you're you're targeting? Is there is there that you are willing to reveal here. <laughs> is there any any space you're you're looking to target that we're not aware of at this point? There there are two industries that we are actively doing all of our research, all of our phone calls, all of the meetings or whatnot that that hopefully if everything checks out, we can invest in, in those industries. I don't want to give too much away because uh, you know, that's that's under my pay grade, Gene. I haven't said that in a long time. <laughs> I'll leave that one for the mayor. He can make those announcements. There you go. <laughs> um, there's been a lot of activity. The mayor, there's been some activity, including uh, last year and in the, in the year before, mm-hmm. where there has been effort to get more people of color into the game of business. In mm-hmm. meeting uh, specifically African-Americans here in Albuquerque, we only make up 3% of the population <laughs> But there has been a, a pretty aggressive push through the efforts of city council and others to have a, a fund mm-hmm. for those who want to start a business. Can you talk about that a little bit? It, it's, as I read it around the country, fairly forward leaning. I can't really find much like it in the country. So I'm you, curious and, your and, thoughts on it. And you can. And, and um, you know, I, I want to say this was three, four years ago. It was an idea that I was thinking about even in my county days that I thought there should be uh, some type of anchor institution for black people out here and i say that with all due respect to everyone who lives in this beautiful city right you have the you have natives with the public cultural center you have the hispano which is an anchor for the hispanic population uh and, and that really drives a lot of business for them right they can get grant you can go after grants you can do projects you can get contracts and so one of the first things i noticed and there are a few people who try to get like a, like a black chamber established uh, 
But to Teresa Carson's credit, which I'm not surprised because she's a brilliant woman, she has that the Greater Black Chamber really up, operating, thriving, being involved in the community. Uh, but with that being said, I also start thinking, as, I, as I'm being very transparent, mm-hmm. my privilege allowed me to do a lot of things, but I, I was able to remember before my privilege how it was, right? Before you build a name and have a reputation, I remember going, trying to get a loan from a bank. I remember you know, uh, them running a credit report good credit but ah you're still risky like i you know i remember oh well who's your partner in this right because they're just looking at me well who's your partner so with me remembering all of that stuff uh i felt that the opportunity especially with everything that the the the, 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 let me phrase right especially once the world realized how bad it was for black people right covid did a covid put glasses on America, put it on the world, actually, put glasses on. And it was like, oh, wow, this is what's going on. So the time and the opportunity presented itself where it's, hey, let's be very honest. Black people love Albuquerque. There's a reason why we're still here. There's a reason why we promote this to our friends and families to come move here, right? But let's be honest that we're, we're, the, we're the one excluded group, right? There's other excluded groups, right? The Asian population is now starting to rally around like, yo, we need more programs. We need more resources. The refugee immigrant immigrant populations are saying the same things. And both black people, they've looked at, we've looked at the history throughout Albuquerque and New Mexico and said, hey, we had a hand in building this thing as well, right? We should be included. So then with that, you know, we started the One Albuquerque Fund for the reason of not, not even thinking about the Black Community Investment Fund. We were just thinking first of, Let's create a foundation that can help push things through this city where it doesn't matter who's the mayor. And I, I've told people this. It's the worst thing when a new mayor comes in. There are programs, initiatives that are amazing. Yep. But since they want their name on something, they get rid of it. So the only people that suffer when it comes to elections and politics are, the, are your constituents. So that's what the fund was really created for, where to say, let's invest in things that no matter if it's Tim, no matter if it's RJ, doesn't matter if it's Marty, doesn't matter. And hopefully the next mayor, I'll be saying a, a woman's name, right? It doesn't matter who it is. They're going to come in here and the, there's going to be programs in place that the community is going to say, oh, no, no, we love this. And if you touch that, <laughs> there's a good chance we won't reelect you, right? So that's what how the fund started. But then, then as I as we started fundraising and engaging with more of the community, I was like, you know what? This might be the time for us to actually start a fund dedicated to Black businesses and organizations, right? And we were fortunate enough to hit, get some CARES Act money. We, you know, I did the research. The team was doing the research, and and I was very I was very direct with our team. I said, find us money that we can specifically earmark. For black people, and that's not discriminating discriminating against anyone. Sure. That's just us knowing the landscape of this city, saying we need something to help anchor black people as well. And we were fortunate enough to get a million. I wanted more than that, uh, but we had to fight for that million. And that was one of the greatest examples of of how it is out here. If you go and you and you do the research on us getting that one million, we had to fight for a million, right? Um, but that Black Community Investment Fund, I have to step away from the One Albuquerque Fund, which that's where the fund is housed. It's housed in the One Albuquerque Fund. 
uh, I stepped on, like officially stepped away. I'm still considered like a founder or whatnot, but you know, we're, they're actively looking to get matching donations to put more money in that pot. And the goal of the Black Community Investment Fund, the first round was grants. Give out grants, help out people who are struggling. That fund, though, is specifically for investments. We want to invest in you. You grow your business. You're able to pay back the investment. And then there's this evergreen. So we're never having to go out there and continue to, to in my opinion, beg for money, right? Instead of, so let's make our own money. Let's let's be able to invest in business and not have to go to the bank and say, oh, you don't qualify for a loan. And when I tell you this, Gene, I tell you being very transparent and that you're getting a transparent conversation from someone that's, that works in government. I have multiple Black friends who have the same exact story as me. Same exact. All you're doing is changing banks and changing the person. Same exact story. So if you hear it time and time again, why continue to do the craziness? Why not figure out a solution? And the solution is the investment fund. And then, you know, a little birdie told me that uh, there's going to be a black founded and owned bank out here what soon. A little birdie told me that. I don't, I, so I, 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 you'll, you'll be the first to get the phone. Call. I love this. This is interesting. I mean, we've had, I, if I remember correctly, only Las Lunas uh, years ago, we had a black owned yeah, uh, it was it was Ken Carson. Ken Carson, our man from Nexus, uh, Nexus yes. Story. That's right. Yeah. But a little a little birdie told me that. Okay. So this is uh, I'll take it as groundbreaking news today, though. That counts. <laughs> that counts. <laughs> okay. I love it. Charles, I, I just I gotta say, I, I I looked around, I was talking with the staff about this uh on Monday. I I are you the only African American to head an economic economic development department? Uh, in our top 50 cities, or, or, or you're one of a few handful? I, I mean, I'm one of a few. A uh, good okay. friend of mine, Mr. Ron Wallace, said he believes that I, I, I'm the first in our city's history. Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, it's not it's not many of us. I, actually, it's funny, Gene, you mentioned that. I've actually put a little note in my calendar to actively reach out to uh, black and brown ED directors, where mm-hmm. I want, you know, just to see – I mean, out there, talk, nice. see the things that, that they're experiencing, uh, hear their stories, hear their backgrounds. Because I think a lot of people's background and story can almost give you an insight to their type of leadership or their type of personality, right? Because right. your your past really shapes you. So I'm interested to see how many I can get in contact with, talk to, and see the similarities, right? right. Or And then even the differences, right? Your, your experience might be... You're shared, we might not have the same shared experiences, but there might be something to the core that that's very similar. So I'm I'm interested to see that, and that's a great stat. I, I hope you and your staff. Hey, matter of fact, if you and your staff can come up with the list, just send it my okay. way. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm still looking. And, you know, I'm still we looking. Have a so I will. We have a collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Hey, Charles, congratulations. This is really quite an extraordinary deal. I've known you for a little bit now and watched you come through all this, you know, climbing to this. And I know you're going to have things to do afterwards. Uh, it's all said and done these three years, but I, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for the city. I'm excited for the possibilities, the things you've done already in just a few short months. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And the fact that you're getting a plan, a three-year plan together now, I think is actually very interesting. You're not just going to coast out these three years and just sort of, you know, see what happens. You have a specific, that's you, that's who you are though. <laughs> You know what I mean? It is me. It's good to have a plan, have a direction. And and of course, um, like when you start a business, you have a plan and then you make adjustments as you move forward or whatnot. But I think if you do have some like two, three, four pillars where you like, if we can accomplish this, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll allow us to be in a, a better position for who's next, right? I think that's our job as an entire city is yeah. our job is to put something in place as a building block for whoever is next mm-hmm. to take it and to continue to grow it or enhance it or make it better or whatnot. Uh, so that's how I'm looking. That's how we're looking at this three-year plan is what can we put into place that we pass the baton, truly pass the baton, like a true four-by-one team, yep. Gene, you pass the baton, right? We can't finish if you don't pass the baton. <laughs> That's right. Good point there. Excellent point. Charles, we're lucky to have you. We're very Thank lucky to have Charles Ashton III, our director of the uh, Albuquerque Economic Development Department, and always good to hear those names. You, By the way, you named off for your department. You got some good people working with you, man. That's we, a solid We, we do. Absolutely. We do. We're adding, I think, two or three more. We, it's a solid team we're trying to build. Yeah. And then and, and I've been very transparent with the team. I said, look, I, we want to build something where – uh, you have the mindset of just a go-getter. Let's just go and get it. Let's go and get it. And then if it's no, it's no, and we figure out a solution. So thank right. you for the compliment. I hope the team uh, is watching. I know Monica Mitchell is watching because she is a fan of yours. So hey, what's up, Monica, if you're watching. Uh, and Gene, thank you for everything. And, and it, it is crazy to see the growth because I, you, I met you as soon as I moved here. So that was like 14, 15 yeah. years ago. I was a young pup at the county. I love it. <laughs> but you were going somewhere. It was easy to see, bro. You were going somewhere because you you came in committed to the yeah. community. Do you know what I mean? That's the yeah. difference. You weren't here to wipe your feet and go somewhere else. You no. came here committed. This is this hey, is home, baby. That's right. That's right. <laughs> hey, let's check in with you in three to four weeks on the plan. Uh, that'll Sounds be dynamite. Good. I'll get with Sarah, and that we'll figure something out because I think that's some time well spent in detail on that might be good for the community we'll as well. We'd love to. So. Thank you. Yeah. All right, folks, we will see you Friday night at seven o'clock. Of course, we've got some great issues coming up. Uh, Oh, it's been busy in the news this past week. We're going to try to wrestle some of it to the ground. It's going to be tough, but please do join us at seven o'clock on channel 5.1. Till then, stay safe, of course. Stay out in the sunshine if you need to and you want to. We'll see you then. Charles, thank you. Really appreciate it. Always. We had a great line opinion panel join us virtually by Zoom, as we have done for quite a while now, but we appreciate their input, starting with Ed Perea. He is a lawyer and a legal consultant, as well as a public safety consultant, former law enforcement officer, always brings great perspective to the show. Also, Michael Bird, a public health expert. And we were also joined by our friend Julianne Grimm at the Santa Fe Reporter, And one of the big topics of the week, the governor's call for the State Investment Council to divest New Mexico funds that are tied up into Russian interests as a way to exert more pressure on Russia for the ongoing invasion into Ukraine. This also ties into, of course, our soaring gas prices, which you've no doubt noticed that, the price of the pump reaching all-time highs. And the governor this week also encourage the federal government to do away with the federal gas tax uh, temporarily to help ease that burden. We're feeling it not just at the gas pump, but inflation all across the board. If you've been to the grocery store recently, I'm sure you had a little sticker shock there. So we wanted to dive into all of that and what impact all of that divestment and those other pressures, economic pressures, what they actually mean in terms of the overall global issue now. So here's host Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel.
Let's welcome back our line opinion panelists one final time this week. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham last week called on the State Investment Council to immediately evaluate the state's portfolio and divest all state resources to anything tied to the Russian government. The governor's office estimates that's just about $8 million. Is this a common sense move for us considering the atrocities, of course, you know, Ed, we're seeing in Russia right now, Russia carry out in Ukraine right now. Everybody has an urge to do something. I'm interested in your opinion on the governor's move here. Gene, you know, you're absolutely right. I think we, we all agree that there's such atrocities happen to the, the citizens of Ukraine, and it's, very, it's a very sad situation. Mm -hmm. The move to divest uh, investments from Russia, you always maybe have to step back. We all want to do something. We all feel that, you know, what, what can we do to, to, you know, hopefully make a difference. But when we talk about economics, I think sometimes we have to take a look at what we may be creating through some of our some of our decisions and and where do you draw the line where's the line in the sand for example there are countries across the world who have very poor human rights records i mean there's china who right. uh, just full these human rights issues and at what point do you say we are no longer going to do business with bad players out there where mm -hmm. where is that line mm -hmm. and yet there's also the the issue you know of uh economic diplomacy, but you know, maybe we need to take a look at what that can cause. I know we're trying to get uh, President Putin's attention, but what sort of impact is that having on the citizens and the innocent citizens in Russia? And I know that statement may be you know, somewhat controversial. We were trying to get through Putin, through his citizens, but are we creating some other, some other issues there that, that we haven't thought about? Again, mm -hmm. you know, we all want to do something, and I think we all are, are trying to do something, but maybe just think about you know what impact some of our decisions have on on other people what other you know ill effects we can have on on other innocent people and it's just something to something to look at and something to think about when making some of these decisions yeah interesting uh, julianne we just heard from the executive director of, of the foundation for open government if i had to bet most people had no idea our state had eight million dollars tied up in russia or that the State Investment Council manages about $36 billion overall. I know you know this, but should information and motivations behind these investments be more available to the public? I don't think it could hurt. You're probably not going to catch me saying we should keep more things secret from the public. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I do think that it's a question of awareness, and it's also a question of the, the understanding of the timeline. You know, the Santa Fe Reporter has covered divestment efforts uh, on a number of fronts, particularly with the New Mexico Educational Retirement Board. Yes. You had teachers who were saying, we don't want our retirement money invested in private prisons, for example. Mm -hmm. We've also seen the New York State pension system and Washington, D.C. also divest from fossil fuel investments in their pension funds. And I think this is a, it's a reaction to people really wanting to exert control. We have very little control over lots of things and being able to say, well, I don't want my money to support X, Y, and Z somehow seems to make people feel better. Uh, but I do agree with Ed that the consequences of that are much more complex. Um, we've got, you know, in the last couple of days, a lot of corporations across the globe are saying we're not going to provide services or sell products to Russia. You have a push to 
change entertainment schedules for fine arts performers from the country. You have in Santa Fe here, we had a local business that pulled the Russian vodka from the shelves. But then when we wanted to write a story about it, they didn't want to get tied up in the politics and go on the record. We had a, a gallery on Canyon Road called the Russian Gallery, which is now no longer called that. Oh boy! So this idea of how counts, cancel culture yes. and real economic sanctions and real global security issues all interplay. I think none of us are the foreign policy experts that we would like to be on social media. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael, as you know, uh, President Biden officially called for the uh, banning the import of Russian oil. We've got some pretty high gas prices going on, and the, and the president says paying more at the pump, quote, you know, it's the cost of freedom. Defending freedom is going to cost, is the exact quote. That same day, Governor uh, Lujan Grisham joined a call from other Democratic governors calling on Congress to repeal the federal gas tax to help out consumers. Smart move for Washington if they considered this? Well, I guess what, what I'd have to say is that it's 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 the first, in terms of the, the Congress and the presidents, the first time that I think everybody's gotten together, gotten behind something in, in recent history, um, considering uh, every, the Democrats and Republicans are coming together kumbaya on this one. Um, let, one can only hope that it would carry over to some of the legislation that's already pending uh, where they have failed to act. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a short term picture and there's a longer term picture. And, and, and clearly people with uh, greater expertise in economics and, and uh, people maybe who have, uh, you know, uh, their, their own trust funds. I'm not, I'm happy to be a trust fund baby. So I'm, I've, I've got much less to worry about. <laughs> um, but it just is, um, the other thing is, you know, I mean, um, you know, compared to the rest of the world in terms of our access to gas and 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 transportation in terms of personal vehicles, um, you know, maybe, I mean, there are clearly a whole host of people that are impacted in different ways. But one of the things, I mean, you you have to look at what people drive. I mean, I mean, if if somebody's driving this huge truck and they can afford it, and 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 the insurance and everything else that goes with it, well. Um, Maybe they can afford the gas to put in it um, because vehicles all, I mean, there's, we're, if you want to look at things, what does it take to create a huge vehicle versus a smaller vehicle? What does it take to, to, to keep that, maintain that mm-hmm. and uh, versus, versus a smaller vehicle or, ele- or electric cars now? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, a, there's, I mean, there's so many ways you can look at this picture. And, 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 but if you, I mean, if somebody wants to drive a big truck, well, great. But the downside is you got a big truck, it uses a lot of gas. Mm-hmm. And, and some of them need that for work. And, but so, a lot of people drive these things just because they like driving something that's huge. Well, that's part of it. Julianne, we're under a minute here, but I'm, I'm just curious how this situation might fit under the governor's hydrogen plans. Is there something here that might either upset those plans or goose those plans along? <laughs> No, I don't know that I really have a great answer for yeah, that. But I, I do want to piggyback what, what Michael said that Please. you know, there are other ways to express your distaste for high gas prices and there are other ways to um 
make choices about transportation and how you get from point A to B. And so maybe bike to work for Ukraine will be a slogan that catches on this summer. Interesting. Well, how about a horse? Oh, the horse. I'm, I'm with the horse. I'm with Michael there. Thanks again to our line panel, as always. <laughs> hey, this just, week. Just one, sure, one, please, Ed, go ahead. Yeah. Just one final thought. Yeah. This may present an opportunity. And so we need to think about this situation as an opportunity to address some of the things that our community and society has been concerned That's right. about. That's right. Thank you for getting it in. And that's actually very good words there. Hey, be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics our line folks covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. I want to bring you some extra content now with our line opinion panel. It's our one more thing that we do each week to kind of warm up for the show and cover some things that we don't get to cover in the show. I want to bring it to you here because fascinating conversation about a story you have no doubt read about, watched about, listened to this week, uh, a terrible tragedy up in Santa Fe with a driver wrong way on uh, the highway that caused a deadly accident that killed a Santa Fe police officer as well as a retired firefighter. Uh, just a wild story. Originally started out as an apparent kidnapping. This week we learned that apparently the kidnapping did not happen, that the woman who claimed she was kidnapped was actually the one behind the wheel. And then she was later found with drug paraphernalia when booked into uh, jail. And so this leads to a ton of questions around uh, everything from how it was handled to uh, how we handle high-speed chases, especially on the highways where uh, the regular citizenry can be at risk. And we thought we would take advantage of a couple people on our line panel. Ed Perea, as we mentioned, former law enforcement officer. So he has experience in this area. And Julianne Grimm and the Santa Fe Reporter have done some great reporting on this story as well. But we're going to kick things off here, as you will hear, with Michael Bird talking about the news of the massive undercount or miscount, nearly 19 million people in the 2020 U.S. Census. I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with our line opinion panelists We're right there on Zoom. Before we get going, we'd like to warm up by doing other things that are on our minds. It's a big news week, that's for sure. Let's welcome back Michael Bird. Always, Michael, always good to see you. Always, always, always. Soon it'll be here in the studio <laughs> at some point, we think. What's your one more thing this week? Well, I think um, my one more thing would be the 20 results of the 2020 census count. Mm. Um, and uh, what we're seeing at this point in time is an uh, undercount uh, of, of uh, Native American, Latino, and African American communities. And it's, uh, it's an undercount of, of uh, 11%. I mean, uh, undercount of, 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 in terms of a decade, it's a major undercount, given the fact that uh, political representation, federal funding for um, health care, education, and transportation systems are critical and particularly for New Mexico. And um, given our the challenges with infrastructure and the fact that uh, as far as native communities, which are 11% of the population and have clearly not uh, always been considered in funding uh, mechanisms, this is a, I think a, a real issue that needs to be, uh, needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. You know, Michael, we're sitting on three point, not sitting on, but we have 3.7 billion at our disposal for infrastructure. There is not a question, I would hope, from anyone at this point that, you know, for folks 
in different parts of our state, Native American enclaves, so to speak, perhaps that should be the first place we look since we have underfunded infrastructure in those areas. Is that a reasonable argument that could be brought to somebody in your view? Well, I, you know, I think the state is doing is addressing some of those issues in terms of the uh, this last legislative session. There was some an increase in funding, uh, but clearly there's a record, a historical record of, of underfunding. Right. When when you look at uh, the, the Yazi Martinez case, when you look at the, the last um, this most recent legislative session and, and the uh, sort of the tumultuous conversations that went on, I guess, in the Senate, and the legislature around representation, and they did move in the right direction and increase um, native representation. It appears, or at least, the opportunity for greater native representation. Mm -hmm. So I think if you, when you look back at the historical record, which um, oftentimes people don't want to do that, uh, but when you look critically, it sort of is a, it, it it lays it out very clearly. Um, you know what uh, you know where resources have gone historically and I think it also demonstrates to us what we need to be resourcing and, and funding mm -hmm. good points there absolutely we'll see how that goes along that's interesting though at your first point about the, how the census is playing out that might be a conversation worth having uh, at some point down the road I want, don't want to miss that your original point there uh, Julianne Grimm is here she is editor and publisher and wears a lot of hats in Santa Fe, that's for sure, for the Santa Fe Reporter. What's your one more thing this week? Well, I think everyone's aware of the big news out of Santa Fe uh, over the last week, which is that we had a police chase uh, that resulted in two folks dying, one police officer and one retired firefighter. Um, this accident occurred on Interstate 25, and the police pursued this suspect um, up the interstate in the wrong lane and down the interstate in the wrong lane. So this driver was really behaving erratically. There was also a wild twist where the uh, person who was driving the car turned out to be a woman who police now say was alone in the car. Mm -hmm. But at the time of the pursuit, police thought that there was a woman who had been kidnapped at knife point. And so their motivation in treating the situation rather urgently uh, was based on something that turned out to uh, apparently not be true. Uh, the investigation is ongoing. You know, these things tend to move very quickly in the news cycle, but they really move rather slowly comparatively in the justice yes. investigation sphere. And so really one of the other big parts of this is that for about four days, folks in Santa Fe thought there might be a carjacker on the loose. And that turned out to not be a... a uh, thing, but it was definitely something that the community was uh, told by the police. The word manhunt was used several times, even though it, it's become clear now that just very shortly after the investigation, there was no uh, male suspect mm -hmm. identified. You know, interesting, I'm interested in your opinion on this because I, I, your paper has done some great reporting on this, and particularly the difficulty in reporting this because of what you just said. There's been some massive lags on information here, I'm curious where you, I mean, four days is an awfully long time to have a community on edge on something like this. That's a long, long, long time. Have we heard anything from Santa Fe police about why that happened or from uh, uh, state police here about why that delay happened? Have they had yes, an accounting about 
appropriate agency to to put those questions to is the state police. They're the ones who took over the investigation because it involved this fatality with a Santa Uh, Fe city officer. So you have the state police, of course, handling lots of investigations uh, at any given time. And frankly, communicating with the media and, you know, thusly communicating with the public is not uh, always first on their list Mm -hmm. of considerations. So we were getting clues from our sources the night of the crash, the day after the crash, that police were suspicious of this original story, Mm -hmm. but the state police were very slow to acknowledge that. And uh, Mm -hmm. we still have a lot of questions about the decisions made in that communication strategy. They've sort of come back uh, just recently, just last night, we got an answer to a question we submitted via email you know, why didn't you tell folks the story was changing? And they said, well, we would rather be slow than be wrong or something like that. Well, uh, well, well, I'll just let that go. (laughs) Interesting. That's interesting. Um, Do we know why this woman was allowed to go home to Albuquerque and then come back to Santa Fe with a needle and drugs in her undergarments? I mean, that is one of the real mysteries of this, you know? And I think the other, you know, real thing that's going to emerge is that this is not the first time that this woman was driving erratically, refused to pull over when officers engaged with her, and then also told the police that she was being held against her will and forced to drive around and do this. So Mm -hmm. there's going to be some accountability about why she wasn't charged in Cibola where this took place. Right. and, you know, in terms of accountability with her being allowed to be, you know, released from the hospital and, and put back into the general public, I'm not sure that we'll ever really get a straight answer about why that was the course of action. Yeah. But we do know she was being closely surveilled during that whole time. Interesting points. Thank you for that, Juliana. You will continue to watch the Santa Fe Reporter for your excellent reporting on this. It's, you guys have really uh, been stellar on this. Ed Perea, as a former law enforcement, first of all, thank you for joining us. It's been a while. This, you've, we've had you uh, since a long time now, but I'm curious your opinion about, and I'm not asking you to judge how things went down. I want to be very general here about police chases, the go, no go system, who decides a chase is on, who decides a chase is off. And I say this under the idea that we had our problems here in Albuquerque back in the 90s with this, and we had some real situations that cost real money uh, at some point. So, and I'm curious, just philosophically, were you ever involved in a chase like this in your law enforcement career? Let me, let me start there. Yeah, Gene, I have. You know, I spent you know nearly 24 years with the Albuquerque Police Department, mm-hmm. you know, and as a supervisor and a commanding officer, and under the new policies, which came about in the in the 90s about the 90s uh i think municipalities police departments across the country were realizing the the, the dangers of allowing chases to, to to go on uh in many cases they were finding that that it really wasn't worth apprehending the the, the offender the fleeing vehicle right. versus the danger to to the public um, and this played out in, in the unfortunate loss of lives of innocent people traveling with families, driving through the intersections, uh, but also in, in, in liability. And it was a result of you know, those two major issues that forced these, these policy changes. And it wasn't easy for officers to accept. Officers you know, are, are tasked with enforcing the law. And if there's someone who they feel is creating a danger to the public or has violated the law, there's a sense of duty to, to apprehend that person. 
However, there, there had to be a, a cultural change and that's that just taking some time and still taking time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes back off, just, you know, we will catch the person, you know, eventually. Now it depends on the crime too. Most policies are written the way that if the person committed a violent crime, then the, the discretion is heightened and you make a decision and, and you weigh the chase uh, and the uh, uh, the need to apprehend versus the, the danger to the public. And, and every department policy, uh, every supervisor and every officer is, is tasked with making those decisions. And sometimes they're very difficult decisions and it's, it's difficult, um, you, know, you know, in hindsight to say what someone should or shouldn't have done, but you know the the reporting in this case is going to be is going to be critical, mm-hmm. and the after action is going to be critical. Ultimately, we don't want this to to happen again to anyone. You know what what went wrong? Was there were there policy issues that need to be tweaked, or are there training issues? Uh, what needs to be done to prevent this from happening again? And, it, and it's a it's a serious it's a serious problem, and unfortunately, it uh, it resulted in, in the loss of loss of two lives and it's a very sad situation you know i'm curious uh also ed what 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 got put in place in albuquerque uh back in those days i mean who who decides if a chase is on or not i'm not saying you know our system is santa fe's system i'm just curious because i think for like a lot of lay folk we just don't know how this works you know now i understand of course from what you said a second ago if there's you know the idea that someone is holding someone at knife point that changes the decision matrix, I've got to think, like you said, if, if, an, if a life is in danger. But in Albuquerque, what happened? You know, we, we stopped. Was it a lawsuit? What happened there? Well, it's it, just a combination of things. Ultimately, the policy starts from the top. It probably starts from the, you know, from the, the chief executive, you know, the, the civil litigation unit and reports. You know, this is, this is what the, this policy is costing taxpayers. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it comes down from there. From the chief of police to to the line officers and and ultimately line officers are are focused on uh, on doing their job mm-hmm. but the responsibility was mentioned a little earlier that their accountability applies and accountability applies at every level it applies to the pursuing officer it applies to the supervisor all the way to to the department and, and ultimately the city uh, you yeah. know or, or the municipality uh, because you know there's a cost to everyone again the worst of it being the lost lost of lives that's very tragic but yeah the policy uh during the times that i served with the albuquerque police department was the supervisor the primary the supervisor had key responsibility to manage any chase and determine uh you know whether to pursue and what, what were the dangers and risks right versus the need to apprehend yeah I can hear, I, it's gonna be so hard in real time. I couldn't even imagine, my goodness. Thank you guys, really appreciate that. And have to wrap that up there. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico and Focus airs Friday nights, as you know, but also, you might not know, Sunday mornings right here in New Mexico, PBS. And that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. We thank you, as always, for listening. Thank everybody here on the New Mexico PBS team. And we are going to be back on Monday with a lot of uh, other additional stuff that we have gathered throughout the week, including conversations with our line opinion panel about Bernalillo County DA Raul Torres and his concerns about a criminal diversion program and how it's being underutilized. Also, a new child well-being 
uh, act that the governor signed into law last week. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Shannon Kunkel from the New Mexico Foundation for Open Government talking about transparency and good government issues. Uh, and we've got much, much more. So join us again for that on Monday. Spread the word, get your friends, encourage them to subscribe and leave us a review. All of that really helps a great deal. We are super appreciative of that. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy.